Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care Disability Competent Care webinar series. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on March 1, 2017. This webinar is presented by the Lewin Group and supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Dr. Chamberlain, Senior Medical Director at Aetna Medicaid, discusses the importance of primary care as a central component to medical management. Welcome, everybody. So who are we talking about? We're talking about people with physical or intellectual disabilities or disability due to serious mental illness. Words matter. Words matter a lot. Um, Using people with, not a disabled person, a mentally ill person, but people with a disability reminds us that people aren't defined by their conditions or their disabilities. Um, We also know that people may belong to one, two, or three groups of of disabilities and non-disabilities. Disabilities Disabilities aren't always obvious. And that's a problem, but it isn't up to me to decide if I think somebody who doesn't, in quotes, look disabled has a disability. And it's also not up to me to decide how limited somebody's life may be by a visible disability. But these happen to people with disabilities every day, um, particularly in medical practices. Next slide. Um, As a primary care doctor, as a family doc, um, I needed to be aware that people with disabilities do experience delays in routine care, might not get recommended care at all. Um, We often don't think about health education or uh, really critical screening, cholesterol, diabetes screening, mammograms, pap smears, all of those things are often missed um, in the kind of confusion of caring only for the the critical pieces of somebody's disability. Um, as PCPs, we need to be careful not to assume that a new patient with a disability has had all the appropriate age and gender uh, routine care. Um, we know that people with disabilities uh, get have difficulty getting to care um, and may not have been asked the appropriate questions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in subsequent slides. If we go to the next slide, which is called social factors, these are really more health systems factors than social factors. Um, Things like value-based payments, which are critical in improving health care. They have a goal of improving quality and efficiency of care and also obviously trying to control costs but it may be harder to achieve performance measures associated with value-based payments in patients with some disabilities. So providers, particularly in a large, busy primary care office, may choose an easier route. They may concentrate their efforts at maximizing the measures for which they get enhanced payment with their non-disabled patients because that's the majority of their practice panel. 
Um, this in patients with disabilities who are also duly eligible, have Medicare, Medicaid, becomes even more difficult um, in a value-based model because of the complexity of coordinating which benefits, which care, quote, belong to Medicare and which belong to Medicaid. So it becomes even more complex when you have to, um, you have to coordinate not just the care but the payment. Um, Next slide, we're going to start talking about delivery of care. And the key on this slide is participant-centered approach um, or patient-centered approach. And in, in my lexicon, it's a family doc. Um, this is not unique to disability-competent care, but it is so critical when you're working with someone with a, with a disability to recognize who they are, not just what their disability is. On the next slide, we, we look a little bit at the challenges in primary care. Uh, truly competent care for people with disabilities does need a team approach. In traditional primary care, is it is at its worst fragmented, episodic, poorly coordinated, uh, suffers from poor information sharing among providers of care. As patient-centered medical homes and behavioral health homes have become more common, um, they have encouraged more coordinated and even co-located care that's much more patient-centered and involves all the members of a person's care team and their circle of support. Um, when you move beyond that to a fully integrated system of care, which is something that we are working very hard on as, as a um, Medicaid organization, it means that the medical, behavioral providers, personal supports, ancillary providers, family, and the patient are all working from the same coordinated care plan. They all have access to the same information. Basically, they're working from the same playbook. And this can be as complex as sharing information via a very robust health information exchange, or it could be as simple as making sure everybody has input into and a copy, a paper copy of the care plan um, and of clinical records, medication lists, and anything else that's supporting the person with the disability. So it doesn't require um, a big fancy health information system. That may make it easier, but you can do it without that. Uh, next slide. This is an actual uh, patient, not one of mine, but uh, um, somebody that Chris and I became aware of. This is Pedro, who was a 27-year-old from the Dominican Republic, who at 17 had a spinal cord injury. Um, he eventually, 10 years later when he was 27, moved to the Northeast United States because he he thought he could get better care, and there was extended family, including his mom in that area. However, not surprisingly, shortly after he got here, he came to the emergency room. He had he still had his trach. He had chronic respiratory insufficiency. He had multiple pressure ulcers. He had a urinary tract infection. He ended up hospitalized for this extended period of stabilization, and ultimately was discharged to a nursing facility. Remember, we're talking about a 27-year-old here. And his goal, not surprising, he wanted to live with his mother, manage his own care, get a job, build relationships. Um, he had physical barriers and he had some behavioral barriers that made this difficult. So as a family physician, as a primary care provider, what could I do to help? Well, he needs somebody who understands how to help someone with a disability and he needs a care coordinator. Um, he also needs a coordinated group of clinical providers, not just a PCP, probably a physiatrist and a behavioral health provider. He would certainly benefit from peer supports. He needs, obviously, daily personal care. I'm sure he does not want his mother to do that. Um, he needs mobility assistance, 
And the the bonus point, he needs all of this paid for somehow. Um, that's the, that's there therein lies the hang up for a lot of these folks is how do we get it paid for? And there's where as a primary care physician, I need the help of a care coordinator, um, his insurance company, his Medicaid, his Medicare, whoever it is to help me find um, resources for him. Next slide. So what can his new PCP do? Well, all the bullets on this slide are critical, but I think of them in this order. The first thing is my relationship as a primary care doc uh, with Pedro. I have to listen. I have to share share his concerns and and help him share in the problem solving. Um, second, I have to maximize his physical and emotional health to maintain his independence. Can I do that as a PCP by myself? No, it's going to take a team, and that team includes Pedro. And then we need to make sure we're proactive at treating what can be treated to avoid rehospitalization for him. Um, we can develop a care plan to make sure that every member of his team, including Pedro, knows how to help with his care and knows what their job is in keeping him healthy and independent. His care plan would address his medical, behavioral, functional, and social issues, everything that could help him be successful and every barrier that might worsen his experience. Um, however, I have to say that most primary care docs, me included when I was in practice, really we weren't we're not used to thinking about care plans beyond the the p in a soap note you know what's what's my plan what am i prescribing what's my what's my care plan for him but a true care plan most primary care docs have no idea what they are um and you really don't want the pcp to develop them by themselves it's really helpful if a care coordinator or care manager can help to develop a full care plan and can show the pcp the value of the complete care plan including i will tell you how that care plan can make the primary care doc's job a little easier um you you know it's not we're used to just, okay, we see the person, we do whatever, they leave the office on to the next person. So you have to help primary care physicians understand how a full care plan can make everybody's job easier and benefit the person that they're caring for. It seems obvious to me now, but it sure wasn't when I was in practice. Um, so next slide. Um, obviously, one of the hallmarks of primary care is an annual well-person visit. Now you say, okay, Pedro's not a well-person. Well, it doesn't matter. He gets a well-person visit because there's a lot of him that is healthy. Um, so standard care, history and physical, sure, making sure that I as a primary care doc know all of his medicines. And in somebody who's seeing three or four or five providers, that can be a challenge. Reviewing the care plan. Um, so that uh, what you want is you want your primary care docs to understand who else is part of the team and how each person is supporting that patient. Um, obviously, as part of this, also prevention and health screening. I can't forget that just because the person in front of me has um, pressure ulcers and other medical issues that need to be attended to. Um, discussion of advanced directives, absolutely. It doesn't much matter what age that come, that, could, that should come up um, in some way and needs to be addressed. Um, and again, remember that people, that, that the social determinants of health are critical and that people of lower socioeconomic status, people with higher social risk factors, are less likely to get appropriate interventions. Next slide. Um, so 
So primary care resources for disability competent care. 24-7 availability is something that, as in, in my life, is something that every primary care practice has. Now, does that mean that the primary care physician, him or herself, is available to this person 24-7? Absolutely not. It means that there is someone available, and ideally, someone who has access at least to be able to read the patient's medical records. Um, so that requires some kind of health information exchange or ability to get onto a medical records platform. Um, obviously, accessibility for testing, um, you know, and, and that may go beyond physical accommodations. You know, if somebody in a wheelchair, it may be you have to think hard about how to get them in for um, a mammogram. Somebody with quadriplegia, just the prep for a colonoscopy can be a daunting task. But what about the person who is uh, who has a serious behavioral health disorder and who really can't be alone, who needs someone with them? I know most x-ray techs don't want somebody else in the room when they're doing an x-ray, but it, you may have to allow for that. Um, home care, absolutely. Uh, I used to laugh about I used to say I was the last physician in Maine who still did house calls. But reality, house calls are very difficult to do in a busy practice and you don't get paid enough to do them. However, it's phenomenally useful to see where somebody lives and how they manage in their home setting, particularly somebody with a significant disability. There are home care medical groups that will do this. Also, home health nursing can be a way of getting clinical eyes on someone who has difficulty leaving their home. Um, and when I say clinical home health nursing, I, I mean, you know, behavioral health or physical health, really. Um, but seeing somebody in their home um, who has difficulty getting out or just to understand how they live can be critical. Um, behavioral health homes can also provide uh, a, a haven for people with serious mental illness. Um, it may be very difficult for someone who is disabled by serious mental illness to go to a regular busy primary care practice. And it may be much better if we can find a way to provide them complete care in a behavioral health home. Um, it may be much more comfortable for them and they be, may be much more willing to participate. Next slide, uh, we're going to start talking about preventive care and health education. And I love this. Health and wellness can coexist with disability. I would say do coexist with disability and are as important to people with disabilities as those without. But gosh, this gets forgotten all the time. If we look at the next slide, um, managing my visit. In, in my practice, we had some patients with disabilities who routinely were scheduled to arrive half hour, a half hour before I was scheduled to see them. Um, or some patients who were, who routinely were not asked to wait in the general waiting room because it was either too difficult for them to be in an area with a lot of strangers or too difficult for them to have the amount of stimulation that might go on in a waiting room that involved kids running around and playing and other people waiting. Um, so being sensitive to the need for additional time or for a quiet space to get ready to see the doctor can be very important. Um, New patients were always booked for longer visits in my practice, whether they had a disability or not. But if I knew, for instance, that someone coming in had a disability that might limit their mobility, I might put them in two slots. 
um, the first slot would be to meet me with their clothes on, sitting in a chair or in their wheelchair and talking. And then a half hour in which I might go off and see other patients and the my assistant would help them get ready for an exam and then a second slot for me to come back and do the exam. Um, it is, you know, it, it just takes a little planning and a little extra time, but it can make it so much more comfortable for the person with the disability. Um, the reality is in a small practice, which for at least the first 16 years of my practice life, I had a tiny little practice in a town of 4,000 people, physically accessible exam rooms and exam tables are expensive. And we only had one. Um, we had four exam rooms, but only one was really, uh, really easily physically accessible. So it's critical to make sure that that room, room is booked for the patient at the same time as the appointment. Um, it did me no good if they booked someone like the the young man with um, in his motorized wheelchair who routinely put dents in my hallway, unfortunately, because he didn't drive very well. But, you know, to book him for an appointment and then have that room busy with one of my partners doing a procedure didn't work because that was the only room that he could really comfortably get around in. Um, so you, your front office staff needs to think about that. Larger exam rooms, you might need a larger exam room because you might need to accommodate family, caregivers, interpreters, particularly, say, a sign language interpreter. Um, you can't cram them all into a little tiny exam room that's really meant for just the doc and the patient. Next slide. Um, so what about standard care for people with disabilities? Um, it's something that every primary care provider needs to think about, really regardless of a person's abilities. You need to think about tailoring care to somebody's individual needs. Uh, for people with disabilities, including caregivers and family, this can be uh, is is really critical. We need to include them, but and there's an important but. Um, it, it's important to either ask outright or watch for nonverbal cues that a patient with a disability might not want their caregivers present for the entire visit and to respect that. Um, a person that comes to mind is a young woman that I cared for who's, she was pretty, she had a pretty significant developmental intellectual disability. Um, and she used to come to the office with her mom, although she didn't live at home. She lived in supportive housing, but she, her mom would bring her to the office and um, her dad was actually a family physician partner of mine. And so, um, you know, I had to tread a little bit lightly with them, but she, her behavior when she would come in with her mom, she would regress to, to basically sort of five-year-old kind of behavior and be very difficult. And at one point, it just happened that her mom had to leave the room to do something, and she changed entirely and became much more collaborative with me. Much She wouldn't talk to me when her mom was in the room. Um, and so I was very frank with her mother, and I said, look, when Christy comes in from now on, you need to stay in the waiting room. I will come and get you if Christy and I think there's something you need to know, but you need to let her come in by herself because she wants to, she knows what she needs to say, and it makes her a much more active participant in her care. Um, but, you know, and, and that was news to her mom, but it worked very, very well. So including caregivers, absolutely, but also understanding that some people, even if you think that intellectually they're not really able to participate in care, you have to give them that opportunity. Um, next slide, talking about secondary conditions. Okay, so... Um, 
you have to assume that people may have other conditions beside their disability and they may not be related um, or inevitable. There may be some that are more likely. Uh, For instance, you know, if I'm seeing an adult with Down syndrome, I can expect that weight and obesity may be an issue for them doesn't mean that that they have to it has to be an issue and it doesn't always mean that it's related um, as a primary care physician having protocols in place to identify and treat secondary conditions is really important um, and also screening for uh, secondary conditions particularly depression and behavioral health disorders um, except for people with intellectual disabilities, depression screening really should be no different than what we do for the general population and is something that should be part of every primary care visit. Um, screening tools for co-occurring disorders like depression haven't generally been validated in people with significant intellectual disability, but behavior changes can alert um, to the possibility of depression, things like uh, sleep disturbance, change in, in eating, weight loss, weight gain, agitation, and just asking for self-report about symptoms of depression. The other thing that often primary care docs forget is to ask patients with disabilities about risky behaviors. Um, we know that there is a high rate of tobacco use in people with severe mental illness or serious mental illness. Um, We also know that we can't assume that somebody, say an adult with a developmental disability living in a group home, that they don't smoke. In fact, I remember one patient of mine who we really tried to help him quit smoking and we couldn't figure out. He kept saying he was going to. Well, it turned out that the the barrier to him stopping smoking was that it was his aide smoked. And the only time the aide could leave to go outside to smoke was if this young man went outside with him and also had a cigarette. So the aide was sabotaging all of our efforts at smoking cessation because um, the aide wanted the cigarette. And until we sort of got through that, it it was a real challenge. Um, But, you know, you can't assume that someone, even someone who can't lift a cigarette to their mouth themselves, you can't assume they don't smoke or that they don't consume alcohol or that they don't have other risky behaviors. Uh, Next slide. This section is titled cancer screening, but I want you to think about this as screening in general. We know that there are major disparities in access to cancer screening due to disability status. There are major barriers to to, um, access to many screenings. Um, And people with disabilities are often underinsured, have less access to healthcare, more likely, as I said, to engage in risky health behavior, and we know that there are studies showing that people with advanced disabilities aren't getting screened for things like diabetes, hyperlipidemia, colon cancer, breast cancer, or cervical cancer, um, as much as others of their age and gender. And barriers for them include the physical barriers for some to health care, um, cost, um, health care provider discomfort. Um, and and just the physical difficulty for some of them. Um, so what do we do about this? Well, certainly making sure that a primary care practice has in place standard prompts that say, 
whatever this person's disability, they are 50 years old and they should be referred for colon cancer screening. Um, or whatever the disability, this woman is 40 or 45 or 50, depending on what one, which, which guideline one adheres to, and she should be referred for mammogram. Um, so, and making sure that it's not just the primary care physicians, but their whole office is oriented towards saying everybody gets screened. Everybody gets the, the appropriate screening tests. And health plans can really be instrumental in providing training and community outreach um, and can enlist the help of the primary care docs in their network who are already doing a good job at this to train other people. Um, and it's not on the slides, but before I forget to mention, it's really important to remember that um, while osteoporosis screening for the general public usually doesn't happen until women are 60 or 65 and men even older, uh, for somebody like Pedro sitting in a wheelchair, he's going to need osteoporosis screening at a much younger age because his bones are going to going to get thin much earlier than otherwise because he's not using his muscles. He's not walking. Um, so next slide. Um, is more about barriers to screening and why screenings have been missed. Um, it's important to note that my favorite website is the United States Preventive Services Task Force website. I just love the information there. Well, the USPSTS screening guidelines call, none of them call for separate screening modalities for people with disabilities. Although they do admit that verbal screening tools like the ones for depression might have to be modified with significant intellectual disability, um, none of the screening guidelines otherwise are different. Um, and that's very, very important to remember. Next slide. I'm going to talk a little bit about sexual health because uh, let's face it, primary care docs avoid talking about this with anybody. Um, but even in space, we avoid talking about it with people with disabilities. And so there's lack of information, unassessed needs, or untreated needs. Um, if you go to the next slide, um, think about it. People with disabilities have the same needs and desires. Um, you need to do a sexual health history um, and need to offer education. Uh, screening for sexually transmitted infections, um, and birth control. Um, also, really important to be aware that particularly for women with physical and intellectual disabilities, they may have been sexually active. It may not have been consensual. Um, and think about our patient, Pedro. He had a spinal cord injury when he was 17 and became quadriplegic. We can't assume that he doesn't have sexual desires, and we can't assume that he wasn't sexually active before his injury. So as his primary care doc, I would have to think about that and ask about that. In fact, I would think that some of the acting out behavior might be because he's angry that he sort of lost his manhood. Um, so as a primary care doc, I would need to open the door for the discussion, find out what his thoughts are, um, open to what his sexual orientation is. I don't know if he's gay or straight. need to ask. Um, he's probably not been open to his mother about his sexuality, both because he's a young man and because he's a young Hispanic man. Um, and he might not want to talk to me, but he might want to talk to a peer, someone else with a spinal cord injury, similar age, who's been through what he's been through, who could help him. Uh, but if I don't bring it up as his primary care doc or somebody doesn't bring it up, his care manager, somebody, then he's just going to think nobody wants to talk about it. 
Next slide. Actually, you can go right to 25. We're going to talk a little bit about primary care network and accessible offices. I'm not going to say a lot about network. Um, disability competent primary care was certainly not something that I was taught in medical school. Um, in residency, I remember we did have one session on sexuality and disability. It was actually very good, but it was one hour out of a three-year residency. So most of what I learned, I learned by listening to my patients and their caregivers, being open to suggestion and correction when I messed something up, and remembering to look and speak to the person, not the disability. So in a practice, this is something that we can help help get developed. There's often somebody in a PCP's office who has experience with people with disabilities, um, either in their family or in prior work, and has expertise to share. Practices can also, if they if they really are interested in becoming more disability competent, they can ask some of their patients with disabilities to participate in focus groups or work groups to help them um, improve their disability competent care. Next slide. So uh, you'd like to know, um, you'd like to be able to identify your disability competent primary care docs or practices. Um, it's not very easy. You can't really, beyond knowing that somebody is complying with all of the ADA rules, it's pretty hard to identify who's truly giving disability competent care and who isn't. Um, over time, and whether one whether it's a plan that owns the network or a plan that that um, contracts with physicians, over time, care managers, care coordinators, provider services people, and your docs. Well, well, they'll figure out which practices are both more willing and more able to care with for people with disabilities. Um, we'd like them all to be participant-centered. We'd like them all to be responsive um, and accessible and collaborative. Um, remember that for people with disabilities, as really for all of our folks who are duly eligible, we want them to have an interdisciplinary care team. We want everybody to get together um, around this person's care and, and make sure that they're getting what they need and what they want. Uh, that's a stretch for a lot of PCP offices and takes a lot of work. Um, so that's something that as health plans, we can help our practices. One of the things I did with one of our practices was um, we actually gave them a, um, a survey to do, used SurveyMonkey because it was easy, and asked everyone in the office from the from the front office staff to the docs to everybody just to talk about how comfortable they were with various disabilities and how much they felt they knew about how to help them and where they thought the barriers were. Um, the next step to that was to be working with them on uh, basically a performance improvement or quality improvement project to include everyone in the practice and some of their patients with disabilities to help them do better. If we're going to do that, we need to help them get better, and then we need to reward them for doing it. Next slide. What about using primary care practices? Again, we need to be, health plans need to be willing to help them to develop the quality improvement process and give them the data they need to do it. Um, and again, I think practices need to remember that that it goes way beyond the docs and the nurses and the clinical people. Um, and the the first, when somebody with a disability contacts a primary care office, who do they talk to first? They talk to the receptionist. If they have difficulty speaking, if they have a behavioral health issue that makes it hard for them to 
talk to somebody and and express their needs without either sounding angry or sounding as if they're they're sort of having a hard time. If you have um, a very engaged parent of an adult with disabilities, maybe a little bit too engaged, it's the front office staff who have to cope with that. So we need to help from the from the beginning to the end to make this a better process. Um, next slide talks about accessibility, and again, provider directories. Your provider directory can tell somebody if an office is. Um, accessible, physically accessible. It'll tell them if an office has co-located physical and behavioral health. Um, but who's really good at it and who isn't, that takes time to figure out. Um, physical accessibility and co-located behavior, behavioral health care can be useful markers for a practice that's paying attention to being disability competent. Um, lessons learned from participants um, and their IDTs, absolutely. Um, so this becomes a process that is has to be a little bit um, uh, developed over time. You can't just make a list and check off and say, here are the really disability disability competent practices and here are the ones that aren't. It takes a little time to figure that out. Now the next set of slides, and then I'm pretty much done, the next set of slides are, are titled Pain Assessment and Management. So if you go to slide 29, um, I think that really what we're thinking about here is pain as a symptom. So when I look at these slides, I'm thinking, okay, yes, pain, but think of this as any symptom that may be expressed differently in someone with a disability. Um, there's been a hypothesis that people with disabilities do experience more pain with greater severity, severity than the non-disabled population, but it's not, not a lot of data to support this hypothesis. Um, so it's really what I want people to think about here is that um, awareness and expression of many symptoms, including pain, may be different in people with some disabilities. In the next slide, we talk about kinds of pain, um, skin breakdown. Sure, although in our in our gentleman Pedro, who's quadriplegic, he'll have skin breakdown without pain. Um, and we know that people with severe cognitive impairment and pain um, may have huge behavior issues. It may be very difficult for them to function. Um, until we treat their pain. And uh, the one person that comes to my mind was a young man. He was, I think, about 30, severely developmentally disabled um, and intellectually disabled. And his caregivers would recognize behavior changes in him as indications of pain. I have to tell you, they were incredibly good at this because I couldn't tell. He, you know, he seemed the same to me. But when they came to me and they said, no, David's acting differently. There is something going on and he's got pain somewhere. Usually he turned out to have an ear infection or a strep throat. Um, but, and they were rarely wrong. Almost always, if they said he's different, then they were right. Um, he had no way of telling us. He was nonverbal. But he, for the people who paid attention to them, he was obvious. And then we think about Pedro. He might not feel pain from his skin breakdown or if he injured himself, but what about pain that he does feel? Um, headaches, neck pain, he might have some upper extremity pain. He might not be able to help himself when he has pain. Um, his emotional and behavioral responses will be colored by his physical disability and his culture. 
So as his PCP, um, I would need to think not just about his disability culture, but his but his Hispanic culture and how that colors his approach to almost any symptom. Next slide. A little bit more about pain, um, remembering that everybody experiences pain differently, not just people with disabilities. Um, and everybody functions differently with pain. You know, we all know them. Some people go right to bed the minute they have a headache. Some people keep on going when they're in the middle of a heart attack. Um, and that pain is uh, pain is is tied in with how our attitudes toward pain, um, our beliefs about pain. I think the biggest thing, particularly for folks with some, some folks with disabilities, is helping to educate them about causes of pain or other symptoms, what they can do about it, helping them to feel as if they have some control. If you feel like you have some control over a symptom, it's much easier to cope. Um, not always totally easy, but much easier. Social supports. Um, do they have in their lives somebody with kind of a positive outlook um, and a positive attitude who will support and help them? Exercise, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, some people, not just people with disabilities, but but in this context, um, they may see pain as a, a sign that they should do nothing, that they should stop doing something. And that may, in fact, not be the case. However, in folks with disabilities, whether they're um, physical, intellectual, emotional, um, our standard physical therapists, exercise professionals, fitness people may not really be ready to to help them in a way that they need help. So um, in this case, if as a PCP, if I were referring someone with a significant disability, say, to physical therapy, I might want to call that physical therapist and prep them a little bit, tell them a little bit more about this person and how to help them. Um, you know, explain to them what my understanding would be and, and understanding with the patient about um, how they're going to approach this, this intervention. Um, the next slide just talks about pain management plans and, and what it doesn't say but which I think is understood is that this has to include the, the planning for how to manage pain, whether it's acute or chronic, has to keep at the center of it the person, the person with the disability, the patient that's sitting in front of the primary care doc. Um, the strategies have to be developed together. The interdisciplinary care team may want to weigh in. Um, everybody has to be on the same page. Next slide. So here's Pedro, and this is true. Five years later, he was 32. He was living with his mother in subsidized housing. He did have personal care attendance. Um, he was independent. They did get him a power wheelchair. He had peer support. Um, he it continues to have problems with skin ulcers, but but again, being proactively managed. So rather than waiting till they're huge and he's in the hospital, noticing them and treating them beforehand. Um, and he is stronger. He wants to start driving. Um, so what's what's my job as his PCP now? Uh, my job would be to be see him regularly, be proactive about prevention and treatment of his chronic problems, um, make sure that his IDT, that I'm part of his IDT. Now, realistically, in a busy primary care practice, can I attend a one-hour IDT once a month? Absolutely not. 
Can I call in for the last five or ten minutes? Sure. Can I send a clinical person from my practice or at least have them on the phone? Absolutely. Can I make sure his care is coordinated with his other providers? Yes. I absolutely should. Uh, Make sure I pay attention to standard health maintenance and screening for him as he gets older. Um, And uh, make sure that that I am, again, looking at Pedro, not at a guy in a wheelchair. So in conclusion, and just uh, there's a summary on slide 35 for key to, for key takeaways. Um, I think, you know, I don't need to read them to you. Um, I think that what's critical is making sure that there is a team approach to care for people with disabilities and that we take the time that's necessary to make the teams functional and that at the center of the team is the person that we're trying to help.